0: it is uh, my absolute pleasure to introduce today's speaker for our critical care grand rounds dr. Christopher Cox um so uh, Dr. Cox is um, trained in pulmonary and critical care medicine but also in uh, palliative care, palliative care medicine um, and and writes a lot and thinks a lot and and talks a lot about kind of the role of palliative care in the intensive care unit um, I should have said that he's at Duke University but um, uh, you know I really find sort of this role of palliative care in the ICU. Um, as a trained palliative care provider, but also kind of the role that we play oftentimes as the ICU provider in doing palliative care and executing palliative care um, for our patients uh, to be really important and really interesting. So um, Dr. Cox, I'm I'm really glad that you're here with us today. I really look forward to your talk. Um, and with that, go ahead and take it away. Awesome. Um, it's just such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for um, having me. Um, hope this is fun. I'm going to talk to you uh, i'm gonna talk to you uh th- this is sort of like a um i don't know potpourri so um we'll see how this goes over uh I don't have any disclosures no tobacco in my um past and i just wanted to thank andy as well as suzanne who helped facilitate this and and thank you all for listening in so just a word about me, um, palliative care is part of what I do. We also have this other uh, side where we we cook up a lot of interventions for um, psychological distress uh, for patients who've been sick in hospitals, and we're doing a bunch of trials in that space. Um, uh, I also want to briefly talk about where this came from. I, I trained at Bellevue Hospital, um, and I'll never forget like a sort of turning point in my life in terms of getting interested in uh, critical care and palliative care. Uh, I had this insane interaction with a, a, a woman whose son was in ICU who had been drunk and fallen in a uh, snow drift, developed frostbite. And she and I, for uh, a couple of weeks, were kind of engaged in this uh, uh, discussion or argument or whatever. And she kept saying, you know, you you, he's going to survive, you know, don't cut off his uh, feet, et cetera, et cetera. You're crazy. And um, and, and she was right. Um, and he ended up doing fine. And it was uh, just such a interesting, wild, humbling experience that just really stuck in my mind about just how poorly I was equipped to really uh, have some effective communication, even though I thought it was like a nice person and that sort of thing. More to it than that. The second sort of defining um, inflection point or whatever um, uh, in my career, when we were talking to people um, in these sort of semi structured interviews, it just sort of blew my mind um, about the major way um, critical illness sort of ripples through people's lives. This actually, this study here led to two different interventions that we're still working on today. And the last is um, something we did a long time ago um where we kind of looked at things a little bit differently and and just um tried to describe almost in an anthropological way what happens to all these people and so these really helped form me a little bit um maybe I'm ill-formed now but um but that's where I'm coming from and yes TMI I'm sure but anyway getting to the to the talk here I just wanted to think through with you uh, some thoughts on the integration of palliative care and ICU care. Um, And just four extremely simple questions, they're really, they're they're just uh, uh, chip shots, easy to take on. Who needs palliative care and who doesn't? Who should deliver it? How do you measure it? And how do we understand about how race, ethnicity, and language impact all of the above? We'll get to that near the end. Um, there's a lot of talk, but there's actually, uh, there are a few data on showing that palliative care and ICU settings really changes things beyond length of stay, which is not to say that I don't think it does. I'm just saying that's sort of what the published evidence would say. Some trials have been very controversial, like here's one Shannon, um, and Judy Nelson and, and I did, um, and and that was uh, really fun uh, to live through. Uh, but I would say that there are three uh, large trials that are either done or just about to finish, I think, in the next year, which are going to help contribute to the evidence space. Um, so Doug has a um, proactive palliative care trial. Scott Halpern has done a trial. It's been done for a while. I'm not sure what's up with that. And, and we're, I'm going to talk to you about uh, a trial we're doing right now. We're about to finish up. But I think we have to all agree, perhaps, on what is the point of ICU-based palliative care. Um, and, and I think um, we may have slightly different views on this. And that's probably okay. Um, however, I think we would all agree there's a lot of different ways to to ease into this topic. but it may be helpful to start with what are what are the constraints or the barriers or something like that. We um, perseverate in the literature on how specialist palliative care is uh, limited in number. Uh, it's geographically inconsistent, as you can see here. Uh, these are grades of palliative care quality given by CAPSI by state. There's my state, which is uh, doing a solid B but there are also uh, other people involved, right? There's us, there's the ICU teams. um, There are more of us, but we have less expertise. Uh, Health systems may or may not have the supports for specialist palliative care. And then, uh, of course, we have to think about uh, the targets and how accepting and, and engaged they may be for another provider to walk into the room so let me tell you a real story now so this is this is the honest to god truth um a couple of years back uh, i took this from another from a grand rounds talk i did here at duke i literally this was the mickey and i just want you to, to look at the three sides we had we we only had expanded to 24 beds we moved to this fancy new tower that's since doubled but um i just want you to look at this There. These people, end-stage ILD, hypoxic brain injury, uh, multiple admissions, multiple admissions, dementia, bedbound nursing resident, nursing home resident, hypoxic brain injury, nursing home resident, dementia, end-stage ILD, dementia. Here's the last side, metastatic liver cancer, bladder cancer, esophageal cancer, cirrhosis, pancreatic cancer. And, and, and I'm not making this up. That was like our, our ICU on that day. Um, stories like this, um, someone, uh, who had no organs that worked and over 50 docs had written notes in the chart by the time he went to the MICU. Here's another one, an 87 year old who could barely walk, uh, who had, uh, uh, pretty advanced breast cancer. Um, she rolls into the ICU after having had, uh, a VIR procedure, lytics, et cetera, et cetera family was didn't know what was going on. And last, um, here was a person uh, who had liver cancer. And I looked in the chart when he rolled into the unit, and he had had 23 MRIs and CTs done in only nine months, showing the progressive march of his disease. So um Here at Duke, we don't call them problems. We call them opportunities. I don't know if that's the the lingo in Maryland. I actually keep a scorecard in this little notebook. And every time someone uses one of these buzzwords, I I get to score a point. Um, But nonetheless, this brings up the idea of who needs palliative care. So I just wanted to walk through that a little bit. Question number one. So actually back in the day, Um, many people would say that the goal of palliative care was not simply to reduce length of stay. It's supposed to be based on addressing the needs of the patient. It's not supposed to be necessarily triggered by prognosis, though we would agree this is most likely best delivered to folks with some sort of serious condition. But who actually gets it? Um, In the literature, it's quite variable. Uh, At Duke, it's probably 5 to 10%. Um, there is insane, crazy variability across the country by ICU, by region, by hospital, you name it. This is some great work by Joanne Hart um, showing a bunch of ICUs and the spread of how many um, older adults with DNRs receive CPR. Uh, and you may say, well, what's the right answer? And I would reply, I don't know, uh, but we would agree that this is a problem. We can talk about triggers. Uh, This is a table, excuse me, of some common triggers. We've used this in some of our work, in fact, to sort of uh, argue against triggers. Um, The other player here is when we talk about needs, what does that mean? And I would take you to um, uh, the core elements of uh, palliative care quality. Uh, of which structure and process of care is number one with a bullet, which is what we're talking about. But these are the real things we've been kind of interested in. So when we get into this argument or discussion uh, of triggers versus needs and and what's the way to go here? um, There are a lot of ICU um, admissions here. We would estimate, or Mei Hua would estimate that perhaps a million might meet Uh, one of these triggers as a a specialist palliative care consultation uh, prompt. And in a way, those are relatively easy to to find. You can automate things in your electronic health record or whatever. However, um, it's been estimated um, before we started working on the stuff that maybe a similar number of people had unmet needs. But the problem there is it's harder to know. Because you have to ask someone to actually determine that, right? And then thinking about yourself and your colleagues and whatnot, I think how we decide who gets it um, is highly variable. And this sort of drives part of the problem, right? Um, and some of this may be uh driven in part by the uh, fractionation of service time, the shift work nature of ICU staffing, etc., or belief systems, um, but we would say that, uh, or at least I would opine that this um, certainly feeds into variability. The other problem um, is that um, when you think about the two dominant models of palliative care uh, in ICU settings, you know that. The consultative model, meaning you just put in a consult uh, when you feel like it, that's like the ultimate in um, uh, inter-provider variability, and uh, you might say it's low sensitivity. Uh, If you do a trigger model, um, you can very easily find those people. However, who's to say that those people who meet triggers actually need something above and beyond what the ICU team is doing? And the palliative care team thus sees many potentially false positive cases, or at least cases that perhaps are imperfectly prioritized. That's probably a more tactful way to say it, because I'm sure they can always make someone feel good. And how does research operationalize it? Kind of in, in a similar way. uh, It's actually almost every trial, the eligibility factors uh, are clinical, or a diagnosis or something. And and that's maybe not the most person-centered way to start. So as we think about what would be the ultimate model of doing this, um, it seems like it would be awesome if we had a system wherein uh, unmet needs would be actually driving things. and that way we can know who has the most serious needs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and if it's above and beyond what I as an ICU doc can handle, then we can get a palliative care person in there to help out. That seems like it would be super efficient. Um, uh, I don't know if the crazy box of, uh, of attributes there is really the way to go. So I want to tell you uh, about a cohort study we did and um, present the results of a trial um, in this space, and then start to wrap things up uh, thereafter. Um, And some of this work answers some of these questions to some extent, or or I guess you can be the judge. But um, at any rate, um, we um, had a large cohort that we followed uh, during the heat of COVID, um, perfect time to do a study. And there was also a nested randomized trial that we did Um, We did this in three hospitals throughout our health system, and we enrolled consecutive patient-family dyads. And we collected data across the course of ICU care, and uh, finally at three months. And and in this first study, uh, we took on the question, are triggers a thing? So in other words, uh, if you meet a trigger, does that mean you have higher unmet palliative care needs? And of course, I think we all are unsurprised by finding that the answer is is no. Um, We, as luck would have it, uh, about half the cohort met one of those, uh, I think, nine palliative care triggers. The other half did not meet one. And if you see here, these are baseline needs uh, within about a couple of days of rolling into the ICU after having had the opportunity, presumably, to talk to the ICU team. So you look at the sensitivity and specificity, first off, it's like a coin flip. Um, And the positive predictive value, negative predictive value, accuracy, whatever. And it doesn't change, um, even varying what your definition of serious burden of needs is, using this uh, uh, palliative care needs uh, questionnaire called The Nest which samples across all eight domains of palliative care quality. So so needs and triggers do not really seem to be uh, one in the same. Looking at trigger absent versus present, all the various individual needs, there's just absolutely no difference, even on that level, ranging from distress associated with finances, patient discomfort, et cetera, et cetera. Not a single difference. And um, there were other things we looked at, uh, uh, patient certainness of care, uh, uh, psychological distress symptoms, which are are measured by the PHQ-9, GAD, and PTSS. You you see uh, a lot of p-values that are greater than 0.05 in this table. The second question though would be, well, how do these change over time? Um, And so, um, Uh, Across the top, we're going to look at baseline around about four days, around about seven days. There's some give in each of those. And then uh, along the vertical axis there, we're going to uh, bucketize these groups in terms of very high needs, moderate needs, low, and just zero needs. So we're going to see how those track out. For example, um, if you start off with very high needs, a lot of those folks remain with pretty high needs. Um, some drift down to moderate and low, but most stay pretty high. Conversely, if you have low needs, um, you stay low. Moderate is sort of a, a crapshoot, I guess you could say, and, and lows uh all over the place, but pretty much stays about the same. The interesting thing here is in the absence of intervention, um, needs improved significantly in only about a third of these people. Um, but you may wonder, well, what needs improved the most? And this is like really, really fascinating. So distress associated with financial issues actually improved in some people. Uh, also, uh, spiritual needs, uh, the perception of there being patient discomfort. So there are many things that that actually... Uh, changed uh, sort of uh, over time without uh, us having to do anything. Here's just another way of looking at it. Obviously, I have a lot of free time to play around with graphics programs, but here are the big ones that really change. Financial stress, spiritual beliefs not being considered, don't know what to expect, and uh, patient um, having discomfort. Um, Looking at it a different way, So starting from the top and working our way down, this is people who were um, uh, dichotomized into red being severe needs, green being a total need scale score that is uh, not technically severe. And the same thing you see there. Um, If you um, start out red, you largely stay red. I'll just skip over that one. The the third piece of this, does change in needs um uh does that translate into some sort of protective effect on psychological distress at three months? And the and the short answer is no. The um PHQ9, which is a depression scale, GAD-7 anxiety, and PTSS, a PTSD scale, um, basically these graphs uh just show that they're though there were improvements over time, whether or not your needs were reduced over the course of the ICU uh, did not really make a big difference there. We'll skip over that. Then the, the last piece of this, which I think is kind of interesting, um, again, I guess I'm biased, but when we did a um, latent class analysis, um, kind of like a phenotyping exercise where We looked for patterns of individual needs. Again, there were 13 individual needs in this nest scale uh, survey. Were there certain people whose um, clusters of need um, seemed to, uh, uh, you know, gather together? And it turns out that there were four phenotypes we had, Uh, uh, upper left, complex communication needs. Basically, everything was wrong. This was also uh, uh, one of the less frequent ones. To the right, uh, patient and family distress needs, like patient discomfort, uh, family member not feeling calm and in control, financial stress. One at the bottom left was more defined by spiritual and cultural needs, like language, uh, uh, things of that nature. And then um, a lot of people fell into this. There wasn't one particular uh, phenotype for them, or they had just fewer serious needs. Here's a different way of looking at it just to um this shows all of the needs for each of the phenotype um, in similar order, and it just shows that there there are differences uh, in how these needs popped up for each of these phenotypes. And these phenotypes actually translated into other uh, uh, factors um, across the top there you have the different phenotypes, and then across uh, the side, you have a variety of measures. I think what's interesting is that the, the NEST total score, that is, again, the uh, the unmet needs scale score, really differed quite markedly across the phenotypes. Um, with the complex communication needs, having really, really high median needs, it didn't translate into goal concordance. However, quality of communication and uh favorable relation with the ICU doctor differed quite a bit, as did some other things too. I, I just wanted to stop here for a second and just like acknowledge the awesome work that other folks have done in the space, like Claire Creutzfeld. Um, we, We've we talked about this stuff for a while and, um, and she's really doing some great work in the space in the neuro ICU. So to wrap up this one portion here, needs are distinct, individual, common and complex. Uh, uh, whether or not you have a palliative care trigger, really seems to have pretty much nothing to do with whether or not you have high or uh, low uh, palliative care needs. Um, These things don't correlate highly with long-term outcomes. And if I could put an asterisk on that, and uh, I gave this other talk at ATS on, uh, does a short-term person-centered outcome matter less than a long-term person-centered outcome? So another time we can talk about that, but um, at any rate, and and last, there seem to be phenotypes of need in the ICU. So I'm going to uh, argue against the, all the points I just made now, <laughs> and to, and to say, you know, who maybe triggers make sense if you're in a hospital and um, and no one uses palliative care, um, or maybe um, you don't believe in the outcomes measures. And maybe you think that only long-term outcomes are good and short-term person-centered outcomes are not. I think all of those are, you know, whatever, valid points. Um, So uh, we will move on now. Now we're going to get into the part that I think is a a little more entertaining, a little more um, challenging, maybe. Um, And we will simultaneously take on the last three questions. Who should deliver it? How to measure it? Um, And what is the impact of race on these outcomes? So I'm going to um, paraphrase a a talk I gave at ATS right here. I hope you don't mind. This is a very, very short thing. This was a randomized clinical trial we did um, of an intervention called ICU Connect. Um, So I just, we've talked about some of the rationale for doing this work. Just if I could get you to focus on uh, delivering it the right way. Um, There are uh, several studies documenting disparities uh, based on race um, in ICU communication quality and content. These are just some of the authors I list uh, at the bottom. There are many others. Um, And uh, one of the uh, drivers of this entire trial was um, Duke having received uh, funding uh, for a, health equity slash disparities center. And and this is one of the uh, trials that came out of this. So um, what I'm about to tell you about is a cluster randomized trial. Um, You randomize at the level of the ICU doc. um, And under each ICU doc, uh, we enrolled um, clusters that consisted of two black and two white um, patient family dyads. So the way it would work is if, say, I was enrolled in the trial, um, I would, uh, as soon as I filled up my cluster with two black and two white dyads, I could start again and, and do another cluster, but I couldn't move on um, and participate uh, further in the study until I did. Um we were really going for equal numbers of black and white patients uh, and family members in this trial so that we could look at disparities uh, of black versus white uh, processes of care and outcomes. We enrolled patients who were on the vent for a couple days or more and their family members, though the family members had to have elevated levels of baseline need uh, or else we couldn't make it better. And again, this was done um, uh, painfully so uh, during sort of the worst of the COVID pandemic. And we can talk about that in a sec. And this was a med surge thing. We had two questions. Um, Could this um, intervention we called ICU Connect, which is sort of like an automated care delivery intervention. um, We'll talk about it in a sec uh, versus usual care. uh, Could this intervention um, reduce unmet palliative care needs across the ICU stay? And secondly, could it help to mitigate um, to some extent uh, the communication disparities by race in an ICU setting? So this is to to kind of stick with our um, branding here. The the idea here is that um, families would report need. Um, We would then um, be able to, as ICU teams, to focus on those folks with high levels of unmet need and further understand which particular needs they had so we could deal with it and and not worry about the folks uh, with whom we were hitting it out of the park. So this intervention is a mobile app platform that had um, a family facing side and a ICU clinician facing side. Family members um, self-reported their palliative care needs via the NEST scale through this app They also got question coaching. The ICU clinicians got to see this cool data visualization of um, uh, the family member's needs in real time um, and also over time and what the change was. Um, We also gave advice on uh, how to address each need, which you just sort of clicked on it and it would sort of open up as shown on the right panel. And this is kind of how... This is a, a schematic of how the ICU team and family caregiver, you know, things kind of bounce back and forth. Um, the family member would report the needs, the doc would do a family meeting, they would have a follow-up where they reported needs, another family meeting, more data, and finally our three month data collection. Um, you may be wondering well, what if, what if, <laughs> like, say um Uh, a intervention doc is replaced by a control doc or vice versa, or someone who's not even in the study. Let's just say we had a plan and it was completely painful, um, but we had some rules. The other thing you may wonder is how could all this happen since this was a completely automated system? And and I would just say it happened because of a lot of uh, sleeplessness and worrying about alerts and programming. Oh my God, it was just really crazy. But, um let's talk about the results and not about um, the uh, technology. Um, we enrolled about uh two hundred folks um, about a third were ineligible because of low levels of baseline needs, like we had talked about. We retained about almost ninety percent and the uh the demographics I think are pretty you know standard for for this type of work um, middle aged folks. But what is kind of interesting, um, the composition of our cohort was over 40% black. Let's get into the main results. So this shows uh, study time uh, horizontally and then the uh, NEST, the needs score um, vertically. What you see there is a nice separation between the control and intervention group. Uh, these differences were statistically and clinically, we think, uh, uh, significant. We've done some work sort of uh, with crosswalks between nest scale changes and and a number of other um, outcomes. This is where it gets um, interesting. Um, This is a panel showing on the left white participants and on the right black participants. This is change over time, control versus intervention. If I could highlight just a few things here. First, in the green circle there, the white participants drove most of the overall treatment effect. This is a difference that is, um, I would say, it's about 10% of the entire possible range of the NESS scale score, so a pretty good response. Um, On the other hand, um, looking at the black participants, there are three or four interesting things to point out. Number one. Uh, if you look on day one, they had higher levels of unmet need than did the white patients. Number two, there is a, a near absence of intervention effect, meaning people improved um, in both groups. However, at the uh, towards the right, even though there was improvement, the level of need in both groups was pretty much close to what it was in the white control member group. So a lot to, lot to think about there. Uh, also, um, white intervention recipients uh, had improvements in quality of communication score. Black family members did not. Uh, there was no difference in length of stay, but of course it was COVID. And since no one worked in hospitals anymore, um, you know we had so many beds that were closed, but nonetheless, uh, uh couldn't say and there was no um treatment effect uh by group on distress at three months. Just out of curiosity you might wonder what about individual physicians? Um I have we're still kind of uh, uh putting this all together but if you look on the left there you probably see that the preponderance of um blue dots showing a greater uh, intervention doc, uh, effect, uh, then the red and the other two boxes or panels just show individual patient family dyads. Um, to be honest with you, I haven't stared at this long enough to, to make sense of it. So, um, to discuss and editorialize and, uh, 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 ponder, uh, uh, There were some gaps that we were targeting and and perhaps uh, I may convince you that uh, this intervention may be a way of uh, one of many perhaps to possibly address this. It's actually like a real primary palliative care intervention. That is not something that brings in uh, a palliative care specialist to the ICU. Uh, Sort of the vision was, could we find ways to help ICU docs at least take care of the low hanging fruit? And I think this is the first disparities-focused ICU palliative care trial, but I could be wrong. Um, And eligibility, in contrast to pretty much every other trial to date in this space, was based on what people reported rather than what disease they had. And it's just super flexible. It's automated, cheap, scalable, et cetera. And we've since adapted it to Latin American and Spanish but you may be wondering what the heck um, what's going on with the race effect. Um, we've thought about this a lot. I think there are a few possibilities. Um, my gut sense is that it could be, well, let me just stop for a second and, and also just say um, when we were doing this trial, we have to reflect back on where America was in 2020 and At that time, um, soon into 2020, there was George Floyd, there was COVID, there was widespread reporting of the disparities and outcomes, particularly if you were Black or um, Latinx uh, slash Hispanic. uh, On the news, most nights uh, were stories about how things were not going so well. So just with that context, uh, also, could it be that that combined with um, some historical issues uh, well-placed about mistrust, et cetera, et cetera, maybe Black families' expectations were in fact so low that any attention, such as through a study where you go through the process of thinking and reporting on needs, maybe that was viewed as a positive Um Another um, possibility is that this, the behavior or the pattern of need reporting, was a conscious act. Uh, meaning, as uh, Black family members got to know the ICU teams, there was a, um, a progressive fear of appearing to be difficult by reporting high levels of need. Which, of course, the next step in that. Um, uh, thought would be a concern about your loved one getting lower quality of care if you're um perceived to be difficult uh or a complainer or or whatever So, I think this work you know just shows that there's a lot more to do to understand the experience of those minoritized by uh, a number of factors here um and and I don't have to point out to you all but I will anyway <laughs> that you know our evidence base not only is it pretty thin in general but it's just it's totally white it's completely english language centric and it comes from a couple of three places in america um and by so doing we underrepresent minoritized populations as well as those who live in Pretty much most of the country, and certainly rural areas in, in the south. And I think uh, I think our our trial also highlights a couple of things um, about how important it is to think through issues of um, race and ethnicity. Um, there's just such stark um, uh, physician family member race discordance in this country um and perhaps we do need to um really think about our interventions and how they can be better informed by this because one could argue that like in our trial here just having the answers may not be enough it's how to discuss those answers in an inclusive sensitive way and i i love the um little graphic up there at the top uh, I, um, this is, um, something that we use a lot in the Duke reach center. And, and just to highlight that what we really aim for is equity, uh, which is not about everyone getting the same thing, but it's about people getting what they need as individuals to improve their situation. I really love that. So, um, the sample size a little bit smaller than we expected though, it was uh, it was a tough time to do clinical research when families couldn't get into the hospitals um I hope you haven't forgotten um and likewise, our research coordinators could not either, so a lot of this was virtual um and though it was a single health system with academic and community sites um you know uh, it is still i think in the bucket of uh you know nonetheless representing uh, a broad catchment area of some interesting folks. So the this intervention, largely positive, I think, um, but there's just a, a complex intervention effect by race that um, I think is is uh both important, both uh interesting and, and certainly humbling uh when we think about uh cooking up these interventions to have the best of intentions, and then finding out that they are um imperfect uh for all applications. The, the last thing I wanted to talk about is a, another uh, randomized trial that we're doing right now called PC Planner, palliative care planner. Um, so we talked about the variability. Um, this trial is focused on older adults, which um, we know, uh, you know, like our slide earlier, uh, people from nursing home, dementia, et cetera, this is really becoming a thing in ICUs. And it's really hard because uh, older adults often fare worse than younger folks in terms of their outcomes. Um, and these, uh, needs are super common, uh, certainly among older adults, but the thing is here, uh, it's not really clear. We talked about a primary care, uh, or primary palliative care, uh, intervention. How though can ICU teams and palliative care specialists collaborate? Uh Judy Nelson's written about this a lot and, and other folks, Rebecca Oslikson. Um we um did a pilot of this intervention. I'll describe it in just a bit more detail um in just a sec, in, in which um, you know, this combined um plus palliative care intervention did a lot of great things, but as pilot studies do. Um, they tend not to be uh, recapitulated in randomized trials, but nonetheless, uh, this is just this cool video that we we show. Um, I'll, I'll just play a second of it. This is- Welcome how, to the Personalized Care the, um, Planner Research Study, get or IC Planner for short. This is a study designed to help ICU teams better connect with patients and their family members to improve patient care. Critical illness can be unexpected beliefs so, that each patient family gonna... member has. This is how we sort of if these needs and questions aren't resolved quickly, then another layer of patient and family support will your participation in the study. At any rate, I won't I won't bore you with the whole thing, but um, um the idea is this. Um we um try to Given that, um, like in our MICU at Duke, we have about, I think, 1,600, 1,700, 1,800 emissions a year, which seems like a lot to me. Um, how how do you um, uh, reduce the size of the pool within which you screen? Uh, a concern would be if I was, uh, you know, the palliative care chief here at Duke is saying, hey, whoa, we can't, uh, we can't take on the world here. Um, my second concern was, I was worried that um, uh, docs here in our ICUs would not let their patients be randomized to get palliative care. If maybe it was the CTICU or SICU, I'm just saying. So um, even though I just was arguing about um, how triggers uh, are a little suspect, um, this, uh, we actually use them as a way to say, hey guys, so you're saying you wouldn't let your uh, older adult patient with metastatic cancer be randomized in our trial, possibly to get palliative care. So it was really a strategy to uh, to reduce the pool within which we screened and to get docs on our side. So that's what we did. And this, again, keeping true to our branding uh, here, what it, what it does is this is um, an electronic health record integrated um, uh, mobile app-based system where we built out all of these phenotypes uh, that I use right here, worsening multisystem organ failure, declining health trajectory, um, dementia, uh, poor functional status, et cetera. We um, uh, built logic for this. It, It scours the EHR once a day and it pipes the list of patients and their phenotype through this API to a mobile app. And that's where we start working. This is what it looks like uh, when people um, get enrolled. The family uh, does their surveys. Kind of looks like that. Here's uh, another uh, sort of interface. We um, text the, the docs um, when they need to do something. So it's not like they're necessarily opening up a mobile app every time. They just click on the link and they do the thing they're supposed to do. We have all of the, even though it's real time, we delay um, any text um, if it uh, is uh, before noon. So it doesn't interrupt rounds. There are a few other constraints. We also give them uh, uh, the, the, I guess the uh, the eye if they are not approving uh, enough people, we show their approval rate as sort of a uh, behavioral economics nudge um, and it uh, we let them approve or deny um, uh, uh, us approaching one of these folks though to be honest we um, uh, we actually removed this functionality later because. <laughs> um the docs were just like hey man just you can approach any of our any of our people just just do it <laughs> so it's just interesting how things uh how people evolve or devolve or whatever the the needs look very similar to the icu connect interface this is what the doc is seeing again similar but slightly nicer um showing the tips that they get and this is the study flow um So the ICU team reviews the list, we get consent, and the family caregiver, same thing. Um, They report needs, family meeting, report needs. And the palliative care team, shown here in purple, I know this diagram is insane, I'm sorry. But but the point is that if um, the ICU team gets uh, one shot to make the needs go down, and if the needs do not... um, uh, improve between you know days one and four, the palliative care team gets called in and they they add their services um, to the intervention group. These are the things that we're measuring, um, same sort of stuff, similar design ties. You connect, uh, and uh, we don't. I don't have any data to show on that, but we're going to be done. I think in a month or two, which is really exciting. Um I just want to hurry up and, and conclude so there's a little time for um uh discussion or argumentation. So um unfortunately there's little evidence for the effect of ICU-based palliative care on person-centered outcomes, but more trials are coming, like I said. Um I think right now in 2023, um there is no best way, right way. Um and this is certainly driving variability uh at the uh ICU level, hospital level, regional, national level, you name it. And I, I don't think we know how the pieces fit together best um in a way that's operational and scalable. And last, as we um talked about earlier, there's not only is there little data but there is very very little data um, on uh many people uh in this country that is the trials don't look like on average the people who live in america um and that goes for language so we hope to to uh do even better We have a a trial, we hope, we hope, we hope planned, um, which is going to include those who speak Spanish as their their main language uh, and trying to get even more folks from rural settings uh, involved based on the sites that will participate. So um, was there a compelling story? Uh, Only you can know. Um, And I said there are four simple questions, but but I think I lied. I think they're actually kind of tough. I wish I had the answers. Um, maybe you all do. If you do, please tell me. Um, but at least, hopefully, it was interesting or entertaining or at least uh, 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 tolerable um, thinking through these four questions. And I just wanted to thank all the awesome people I get to work with, uh, both here at Duke and in the Duke Reach Equity Center. And, and that's that's it. So thanks.